John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Where were you in the beginning? The New Testament contains four Gospels. Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke start with the infancy narratives, those familiar and wonderful passages that tell the Christmas story. But John, who wrote his Gospel latest of the four, starts his account earliest, much much earlier. John starts in the beginning. That's when Jesus, the Word, was with God. Because, as John is quick to point out, Jesus is God. Each gospel is unique. Their authors tell the same truth about the same Christ, but with inclusions and nuances relative to their specific perspectives and purposes. John begins with the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. He begins with Christ as the eternal word, distinct from the Father and equally divine. One scholar begins his commentary on John. John traces his account of Jesus farther back even than the creation. The account must reach back to the eternal divine word, God's agent in creation and the foundry of life and light. In the beginning. In the beginning, the word was. God told Moses, I am. And so too, the word is. There's no account of his creation, no explanation of where he came from, and that's, of course, because there isn't one to account. The word always was. And John starts here because it's the central point of his gospel. He starts here because he wants us to remember this as we read everything that follows. Jesus is supreme. He is eternal. The Son is distinguishable from the Father. He is with God, yet he is God. And John begins this description with a new title for Jesus, the Word. And how he uses that term is important for us to understand. The word logos is a popular concept in Greek philosophy. It was a popular concept at the time John wrote. That's probably why he used it. 
From men like Plato and Philo before John to later Stoic philosophers like Marcus Aurelius, the term was used to illustrate an ultimate concept from which all else comes, the meaning that gives everything else meaning. And while that does apply to Jesus, that's not primarily how John is using the term. The concept he has in mind is more related to the Hebrew word debar, a word used all throughout the Old Testament. How did God create? Go back to the beginning, Genesis 1-3. How did God create? He spoke, and it came to be. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. It's also by his speech, by that word, that God revealed himself to his people. Genesis 15 says, The word of the Lord, Debar, came to Abram in a vision. When God wants to show himself to his people, it's through the word. Then we have books like Proverbs. We studied that in Sunday school. We read Ecclesiastes in here. And in those books, the wisdom books, we often find wisdom personified, made into a person. The knowledge and the word of God take on a human form and we're to listen to that wisdom and follow that wisdom. Debar, the word, is used often in the prophetic books, usually right at the beginning of them. The word of the Lord came. Everything else God says to his people, everything you will know about God comes because his word came forth. And that's true, whether it's judgment against sinners, hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, or a description of God's salvation. He sent out his word and he healed them. John has all of this in mind when he says that it was the word who was with God and the word who was God. One writer summarizes it well. In short, God's word in the Old Testament is his self-expression. His self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply the title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. God had always been describing the way he revealed himself to his people as the word. So it makes perfect sense that in Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God, the most perfect and complete revelation from God, he would describe him as the word. In this prologue, in the first 18 verses of the gospel, John introduces a lot of subjects that he'll unpack later in the book. In fact, nearly every phrase in these 18 verses will be picked up later and unpacked in more detail. But this aspect of Jesus as supreme, who Jesus is, this is the most important thing in the whole gospel. Jesus is the member of the Trinity who most actively expresses creation, revelation, and meaning. Jesus is how people can actually know God. Everyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And as it turns out, and as we've been discussing in Sunday school, Jesus, the Word, is the only way we can know anything with certainty. 
So this means that in order to abide in Jesus, all of our thoughts must be submitted to him. By common grace, people can know some truths. But apart from the living word, apart from that word transforming and renewing our minds, we cannot ever think rightly. He is the word. He is the supreme and perfect revelation of God for the world. So if you are to abide in Christ, then how you think must be submitted to him. How do you think about your work? Your work, wherever it is, the work you will do, do you submit your thinking to him? What will I do? Is that submitted to him? How and when will I do that work? Is that submitted to him? It must all be submitted to Christ, for he is ultimate. We live in trying times with respect to our culture and our government. Many believers before us have as well. And there are a lot of ideas out there with a lot of enthusiasm about how we should respond to this culture and this political moment. But if we abide in Christ, the one thing we can know for certain is that all of it must be submitted to him. How we vote, what we encourage the government to do, what cultural preferences we accept and reject in our lives and our homes, all that we think must be submitted to him. We cannot say we accept what John says here about the word. We cannot say we abide with Christ in that word if we live our lives as if something else is actually supreme. John says it beautifully, but forcefully. Jesus is supreme. He is the word, and he must be supreme in all our thinking. John's opening language here calls back to Genesis 1.1's in the beginning, God. It's creation language. But this account is not of that creation in Genesis 1. This account is of the one who will bring about a new creation. And yet here we find that the two are related. Because the same person does the creating. John says all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Look around you. No, really. Look around you. Do you see all these things that were made? They were all made through him. All of them. Without him, it was not made. In the Greek, it's clear that John is referring to an event, not a process. It's not like Jesus constructed or had to do the work of making these things. These things came to be. His work in creation was not labor, that he had to sit down and build something. His work in creation was desire. He wanted it, and it was. He wanted it to be, and it became. And these same purposeful desires, Paul tells us in Colossians 1, are how all things hold together even still. 
John says there is no way that anything can be made except that he desires it to be. Paul will tell the Romans that it's only in Christ that we live and move and have our being. So don't you expect that that has some pretty serious implications for us? Now, not just in our thinking, but in our doing, our behaving, our moving and having our being. All of these must be submitted to his supremacy. He's the maker of all things. When we use the things that he's made, when we engage with the things that he's made, which includes our own lives and the people around us, we must use them for the purposes and in the way which he created them. This should encourage us and it should challenge us. On the encouraging front, your life has meaning because the word made it. No matter how down or put down you feel, you were not made by accident. You were made by the purpose and intent of the eternal word. No matter how aimless your life seems at times, how unglamorous or repetitive, no matter how hard it gets, Your life was made by and through this word of God. And that fact shines the light of hope into the darkest corners of our minds. He is your life, your strength, and even your song. But this should also challenge us. Because now it's not just what we think that needs to acknowledge his supremacy. In order to abide with Christ, we have to live and move with Christ. We have to walk with Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, you must keep my commandments. Our behavior, what we do and what we say has to reflect what we know to be true about this world. That Jesus made it all. Kids, have you ever gotten a homemade gift from a little kid? Maybe a little sibling, a little sister, a brother, or maybe a friend who's really young. They're young. They don't have the skill yet to make a really beautiful or really useful gift. So even when they do the best they can, it's probably not going to be the best gift you ever got. Nathan one year gave me a duct tape coaster. He told me I could tell the story. He gave me a duct tape coaster that was as Useless as it was ugly to look at. (laughs) Last night, he said it was his dumbest invention ever. (laughs) But here's the thing. I did not despise the gift when I got it, even when I threw it away later. And you don't despise the gifts you get, even when they aren't very good. And the reason you don't is because if you despise the gift, you are at least a little bit despising the giver. Dissatisfaction and even contempt for what was made and given to us is at least tinged with dissatisfaction with the one who gave it. So now think of the world. Think about a few minutes ago when I had you look around the room. Think of all the people in this world. And then remember this verse. All things 
were made by him. And what was made was in no way made without him. Every time we despise something that he has made, ourselves or other people or anything, every time we despise something that he has made, we at least a little bit are despising the one who made it. Christian marriages. He made both spouses and the marriage they share. Will we despise what he has made? Rambunctious, immature children. Friends who deeply disappoint us at times. And even pastors who fail to love you as you want to be loved. Will we despise what he has made? Christ's supremacy in creation speaks to both sides of this transaction. We who were made by him need to submit everything we do to his supremacy. We need to live thinking about ourselves and thinking about one another as he made us to be. And when others are the ones doing, moving, and having their being, we who are impacted need to always remember that he made them too. And we should never despise him for what he has made. Next, John writes, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this book will be filled with contrasts, and here we get a prelude to the two most significant contrasts, life which will be contrasted with death throughout the book, and light, which is contrasted already here with darkness. Because all things were made by him, all life was made by him. This is real life, the fullness of life, what scripture will call the abundance of life, and all of it is and only is in him. And we'll come back to this point very often throughout the series. That's why I've titled it Abide in Me. John is often used for evangelism, and it's great for that purpose. We have little booklets of the Gospel of John for you to share with others among our evangelism resources in the back and in the hallway. For somebody who doesn't know Christ, John's Gospel is a masterpiece of grace and truth woven together as a beautiful tapestry. John tells us in chapter 20 that he wrote down these things that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. But his gospel was not only written for prospective converts. And most of us in this room are not in that category. So what does John have to say to us? Now first, he'll say the same thing he says to the unbeliever. We may know it, but we need reminders of the good news of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to remember from where we've come and how God brought us to where we are. But yes, there is more for that. Not better, but additional for us. John wrote his gospel last amongst the four. He lived longest of all the apostles, and therefore he saw the most of early Christianity. He saw Christians trying to mature in the faith and also wrestling with serious doubts. He saw people believing that Jesus is the Christ, 
And he saw people embroiled in theological controversies about who Jesus really was. This is a great book for evangelistic purposes, but it's also a great book for us. Once we have been united to God in Christ, our chief aim should be to abide with him. That should be the goal of our lives, or as the catechism puts it, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what it is to abide in him. And so John will have a lot to say about who Jesus is and how that knowledge of who he is impacts the lives of his followers. And this itself, by our lives, will have an evangelistic impact on the world. John says, life is light. In him is all created life. And in all who receive him by faith is new life. He was the one who made the created life. And he is the one who makes the new life for those who believe in him. What you live is his life. Life in you. Your life is dead and buried. And you now live new life in him. And that life given to you once in creation and given to you again in salvation, that life which is in you is the light of the world. And no matter how it feels, because it's his light and not yours, the darkness will not overcome it. Our time in Micah was a stark reminder of that darkness, wasn't it? This world is in darkness. But our time in Micah was also a reminder of God's glorious promise to pierce that darkness with his light. That's what happened here. That's what this is about. In him was life. And that life is light, and it pierced the world's darkness. And it cannot be overcome. And now we who abide with Christ through the new life we have in him, we too are the light of the world. And that light, which we have and have been given in order to shine on the world, that light is the only way to pull the world out of darkness. You want to know how to act against this cultural moment we're in? You want to know how we can even get on from day to day in the world in which we live? It's living this light. Because there is nothing else that can resist, much less pierce, the darkness. In his first epistle, this same author, John, says, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. God gave you life. Life to go live, life where all of your thinking is submitted to him. Life, where all of your moving and your being, your doing and your working is submitted to him. He gave you life. He will use that word 36 times in this gospel as he calls you to abide in him. The gospel of Jesus Christ, according to John, begins with a treatise on the absolute supremacy of Christ. It's a masterpiece. This prologue 
is a literary and theological masterpiece. And it's on the absolute supremacy of Christ. We submit our way of thinking to Christ because he is the eternal word. He is the only revelation of God through which truth, including God himself, can be fully known. We need to ask where we're failing to do this. And all the things that we think and the things that we believe, where are we inconsistent? Ask God to show you where is Christ not supreme in my thinking? Where am I elevating something else to a position that only belongs to him? Ask God to show you. In Christ alone, he can show you, and he will. We submit everything we say and do to the supremacy of Christ as well. This is because we, like all things, were made through him. And we cannot live rightly unless we live as the maker made us to be. We can have no fulfilling purpose except that which comes from him. Because in Christ alone, we live and move and have our being. And as in these last verses, we find the need to submit our very lives to him. He is utterly supreme. In him is life. This means that the goals, the aims, the desires of our lives, what do I want to do with my life? What will I do? What will my purpose be? It all must be submitted to his glory. And the great news is when we live the life he gives us, We have abundant life and our lives are his light in this dark world. It honors him as supreme. But this takes trust. It takes trust. So I ask you, do you trust his purposes for your life? Do you trust that the life he offers will be abundant as he says? Are you willing to forego the world's way of thinking? Self-indulgent ways of acting? And a life whose aim is to get what you want? Because to honor Christ as supreme, that's what we must do. But Don't worry. As we continue to turn the pages of this gospel, we will find that what God requires, God gives. You need to live a Christ-like life. He will put his life in you and give you a new life in him. So trust him. Ultimately, that's what I hope our time in this book will do. I hope our time in John will increase our trust in God so that we are able to submit every facet of our lives to his supremacy because we trust that if we do, it will be better than if we don't. In Christ alone, the eternal word who was with God in the beginning and is God now, who was God and who is God, in Christ alone, God came to dwell with us. Through his word, This word that we're going to read together starting this morning, through this word, may we trust him enough to abide with him. 
until he comes. Amen.